0: Hello! They laugh. It's right. They can't hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Joseph can't. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Massive Attack Podcast. I am your host, Mitch. This is the 136th episode of the Massive Attack Podcast. We are up to the... Year 2021, A to Zs, the letter today is W, I was about to say V, W, and with me to enjoy everything W is my co-host for every single episode of this show, Joe. Hello, Joseph. how are you? I'm very good,
1: Mitch. You managed to get through that intro nicely. Thank you very much. Yes, so we're up to W. We are. Yes. We're getting very close to the end of the alphabet. We're going to talk about all the
0: movies of Mark Wahlberg.
1: Really? I thought we can talk about Wahlberger. Oh, yeah, well that, well,
0: that was part of it. It was just a junk. No, 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 something close. <laughs> we are talking about The Wall. That's right, WCW wrestler from the 90s or 2000s.
1: I think it was late 90s, early 2000s, yes. Yeah, yeah. And we're probably going to mention the fact that didn't he get backdropped off the top of a roof and then he came back later in that very episode and Hogan was all like, he's alive. No, no, we're not talking about that wall. Oh, we're not? No, and we're not talking about the movie The Wall with John Cena in because I haven't seen that one. But no, we're we're going to talk about Pink Floyd's The Wall. Oh. So we could have done this for our P episode, but no, we're doing it for W. So. W is for The Wall. So we're not playing um, David Hasselhoff
0: singing, breaking down that wall? No?
1: was Is that what it was called? I thought it was called... I totally got this episode wrong. <laughs> I, I thought that was, I'm singing for freedom. <laughs> yes,
0: but it was the wall he was bringing down when he was singing for freedom. Okay. Not that wall. No. The oh. wall that Donald Trump
1: was going to build. Okay. There's a lot of walls. There is. Yes. Mm. But no, Pink Floyd's The Wall, which is a motion picture. Yes. Okay. It is a motion picture. Yeah. But before we get into the motion picture itself, we should probably talk a little bit about Pink Floyd and the album that became the movie The Wall. So I don't know how much of a, a Floyd fan you've been over your 48 years on this planet. I went through a bit of a phase where I really got into Pink Floyd. I think it was probably around 1989 when I was in year 12. And a friend of mine introduced me to their album, Drogues. Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Oh. Well, I wasn't quite into drugs at that stage, but I can see the connection. But no, so Piper's at the Gate, Piper at the Gates of Dawn came out in 1967, and that was their kind of avant-garde, psychedelic sort of period. And ironically, now thinking about it, when I was in year 12 in 1989, I was also listening to The Doors, and I was listening to a lot of, like, 20-year-old music. So. I had a look at what was popular 20 years ago from now, and it would be the equivalent of kids in year 12 today really getting into Nickelback's This Is How You Remind Me, just to put that into perspective. But anyway, so in 1989, I was listening to Pink Floyd. They had a very different sound on their first couple of albums because they had the lead singer Sid Barrett, rather than Roger Waters and Dave Gilmore singing most of the vocals. And as I said, it was it was psychedelic. It was trippy sort of stuff. So if you don't know, there's the song Bike, which is pretty out there. They had another song called See Emily Play, which I think was their first number one record. But they, they were quite a different band. But anyway, Sid Barrett kind of went a little bit crazy from doing Too Much Drugs, and the band continued on without him and became a bit of a, I guess you'd call them prog rock band. I would,
0: because I don't know any better. But yeah, I would say prog rock.
1: Well, they've got a lot of albums that only have three or four tracks on them because the tracks themselves are like, you know, 15, 20 minutes long and they're very drawn out, long, lots of instrumentation. A lot of people would probably call them pretentious. Uh, or pompous is probably another word Hmm. but yeah the, the actual album The Wall came out in November of 1979 and then a few years later in 1982 the movie The Wall came out so we'll probably concentrate a bit more about the movie in this episode yeah so what's your sort of background with Pink Floyd uh, none, really. Like, pretty much what you hear on the radio
0: is my reference to Pink Floyd. So re-watching this, like I know of them, I know who they are. So I knew The Wall, what, Money, is that another one of their songs? Yes, it is. Yeah, so that was sort of used in a lot of montages back in the 80s, so I was aware of that. Learning to Fly was probably, I was aware of that because it was a new song from Pink Floyd when I was sort of paying attention to music, but again, that was... A radio song. It wasn't mm, exactly, a, you know, 45 minute musical piece or whatever. So I know singles essentially in that way. I was very familiar with the wall film clip and I don't know where I would have seen it, but it always freaked me out the kids getting squished into the sausage making machine, the mincer. Hmm. I was always that yep, image that- has been with me forever. So as far as that goes, that's my really only reference to Pink Floyd. Like I know they were a prog prog band and they were important in that sort of way. And is it Gilmore's a pretty decent guitarist by all reports and all this sort of stuff. But I've never gone any deeper than knowing the stuff that they play on the radio. I know of them obviously, but I've never gone any deeper. And I had seen this movie at some point. Because there was a period probably when I turned 18 when I discovered movies. Like, I watched a lot of movies up until then, hiring my horror and science fiction films in the video (laughs) library R-rated because they might have boobs in them. But it wasn't until I turned like 18, 19, I sort of started seeking out classic cinema or classic films or old movies. And I would have watched it in that point because I do remember bits of it or or I caught a lot of stuff on TV. So a lot of movies I saw bits of or I got in late. So we'll talk about bits later on. Yeah, so I ha- I had seen this. I remember s- like one scene in particular. So where I saw the whole film or what, I'm not sure. So really Pink Floyd is pretty much a blank slate with me, but we'll talk a bit more later on going forward.
1: But yes. Okay. So The Wall itself is, what well, you could call it a concept album, you could call it a, a rock opera. It, it's probably both. And it's the story almost semi-autobiographical about Roger Waters, the bass player of the band. He wrote most of the songs that are on this double album, and they're pretty much about either him or partially about Sid Barrett, because as I mentioned before, Sid Barrett had, I think it was schizophrenia, but he took a lot of drugs and it just fried his brain, and he ended up in an institution, and I think he died in probably about 2006, in just not in a very good way. But... Roger Waters always had this idea that he wanted to make an, an album that was a concept album. So the concept of this, it's a fictitious rock and roll star called Pink Floyd. So not that anyone in the band is actually named Pink Floyd, but the character in the songs well, that's is. That's
0: what I didn't get, because I was reading about it and they were calling him Pink the whole time. And yeah. I didn't even associate it with Pink Floyd. I just thought, oh, is that where Pink got her name from? <laughs> I think she got a name from because she had pink hair,
1: didn't she? No, but, she got pink. No, pink. I don't think.
0: No, I remember she, she was pink because she used to get embarrassed and get very red. And they used to pick okay. her for it. So she owned it. But anyway, I know way too much about pink and not enough about Pink Floyd. But, yeah, I never even put the two together that it was Pink Floyd and pink. I was like, that's how stupid I am. But again, go on. So, like, you know how I said I don't get subtext and yep. I don't get text?
1: Yeah, this movie is all subtext. So you don't so, get this
0: movie. Yeah, I was um, – <laughs> There's a lot going on,
1: but keep going. Yeah, so basically the story of the album, which in turn is the story of the movie, it's about a musician that fame gets a bit too much for him. He indulges in a bit too many drugs. The fact that he's suffering from, you could probably almost call it post-traumatic stress disorder of the fact that his dad died in World War Two and he grew up pretty much fatherless. He had teachers that bullied him at school. And because of that, he became a bit of a, a basket case himself. He becomes a famous musician, does too many drugs, and kind of becomes a bit of a neo-fascist as it progresses. So there's a lot of parallels in this to a couple of the other rock operas we've talked about previously. So one of the big themes in The Who's Tommy was the fact that his dad had died in the war, and then his new stepdad was a bit of an ass, But In this, there's no stepdad, but it's the whole, you know, dad died in the war sort of thing. And as far as the movie goes, it's similar in concept to the fact that, like Quadrophenia was based on The Who's album, this is a movie interpretation of the the Pink Floyd album. But probably unlike Quadrophenia, this is hardly any dialogue, nearly all music and interpretations of the songs in music and some really, really good animation for the time as well. So the movie itself was made, as I said, in 1982. It's directed by Alan Parker, who went on to do quite a few other movies. Uh, he did The Commitments later on, It was just probably one of his other famous ones. Come on, you say later on. Okay, all right. Yeah, so, yes, before he'd book. done this... He had already done Bugsy Malone, which we've talked exactly. about on another episode. And but fame. he also did Midnight Express as well. Yes, and fame. After doing The Wall, he also did Birdie, which yep. is a quite a good movie with Nicholas Cage in. He did Mississippi Burning. As I said, he did The Commitments. And, and if you to want, want to talk Madonna. about shit that he's done, he he also did the remake of the Dad's Army film. That was so the last film he's anyway. Made. We're, we're, we won't talk about that. But, no, he is—he has got quite a pedigree of movies that he's made. And, yeah, he, he got together with Pink Floyd and made this movie. By all accounts, he and Roger Waters didn't get on very well. Well, okay, and
0: Roger, before we go too far, there's also okay. a third person involved in this, and that's Gerald yeah. Scarf. Now, Gerald yes, Scarf so I was is a get cartoonist. That. I didn't know who he was. I looked at the artwork going, God, that looks like Steedman. And if you know Steedman, he did a lot of the Hunter S. Thompson stuff, all the all the designs for him, and. They're okay. contemporaries and they cracked the shits. Yeah. Well, actually, Stephen cracked the shits with Scarf when Scarf took a job for the Daily Mirror, I think it was, or the Daily Mail. He took a gig and basically they had a falling out. So the fact that they looked, they were friends, and they their styles is very similar. But it was actually him and Waters came up with the concept and ideas, and they did this. They turned the album of the Wall into a touring stage show. The, the the tour for the album had a lot of these designs by Gerald Scarf in them. So a lot of the imagery in that came and it was going to be, he was going to be sort of a co-director on this movie and it was going to be sort of based on that version of the show with Roger playing the main character and there was going to be a lot of concert footage in it. And they came up with a script together, which was about 35 pages long, which obviously is way yep. too short for a movie. So when they got Alan Parker on, to sort of turn it into a movie, it, it very much changed and morphed, and that's I think a bit of a the problem. Like you're saying, they they didn't get along terribly well because 35 pages of script is not a script for a start. <laughs> you have to turn yeah, it's it like into a storyboard. Yeah, and yeah, so this really is three people's visions that w- I think works. Spoilers for my opinion of it, it works, but yeah, it is definitely three people's visions. So Parker's came on board as the director. And he's turned it into a narrative and he's put stuff together. Scarf is the guy who designed all of it and also animated it. So all the animation pieces are his and they are phenomenal. They are absolutely phenomenal. But yeah. obviously the music is is um, Roger Waters and, the, and Pink Floyd. So yep. those things sort of come together in pretty much Alan Parker's way. Because there was a lot of psycho. You know, psychedelics, so, um, sexual imagery with the animation and stuff like that. And watching mm. one doco on this, you know, Roger Waters said that's all Gerald Scarf that. <laughs> that's not mine. Okay. That's his thing. So that might tell you a little bit more about him. You know, the, the influences were from the three of them. It's not all just Roger Waters' thing. <coughs> and they did had no, and they actually filmed a bunch of footage of the concert and stuff. But when they came to put the movie together, they used none of it. They they thought no, the movie doesn't need any actual concert footage. We, we and the, it changed tax along the way and all this sort of stuff. So I think there's a little bit of bitterness from Roger on that. Definitely a lot of bitterness from Gerald because he was sort of like taken out of the director picture. Like he got to do all the animated bits, but he really had yeah. no say in the rest of it. You know, a bit of a turmoil by the sound of it. So there's two docos on YouTube if you want to go looking it up. One is from 1982 where they're talking about the film and making it and how good everything is.
1: Is that the, the other side of the wall? That's the one, yes. Yeah, so that, I think that, I might have seen that a long time ago. Yes, that's on YouTube.
0: And also, there's another one, sort of remembered, and it's from '99. I think it might be a DVD okay. extra, but it was on BBC. The bit that's yeah. on YouTube, and it's got them mm-hmm. talking now, looking back, and talking a little bit about the conflicts of having it and what they liked about it, and when they got out of it, and all this sort of stuff. And they talk to Parker, they talk to um, Scarf, they talk to Waters, they talk to the, I think, the music editor, who's really good. To, it's really good in that way, like to really breaks it down nicely. And they and they talk to the um, director of photography. He's got the best voice. I just want to watch him. I just want him to talk about everything to me. I just want to listen to him forever. <laughs> He's great. Yeah. So as far as that goes, it is an interesting movie in the fact that yeah, Alan Parker was, you know, he'd done Midnight Express, which I think was Academy Award nominated, and Fame was obviously yeah, huge. I think it was too. You know, so yep. he was he, he was pretty respected in that way. They got him involved to do this project, and obviously the project was interesting in that way for everyone involved. And I think you're dealing with a lot of artists here, like because um. Scarf was a very renowned cartoonist, like known, really well known. So it was a him, him being involved was huge. Having, you know, Pink Floyd, one of the biggest bands in the world. Like, when was Dark Side of the Moon before this? 73, I think. Dark yeah, Side so the that, was. that was, the, was the biggest selling album of all time, isn't it? Or the longest charting I, album? I
1: think it's longest charting album of all time. Yeah, so, yeah.
0: It's, you know, we're talking, you want to use the word potential, I don't know, but incredibly talented, self absorbed genius for what he is. You know, songwriter, with a genius cartoonist and a very capable, well-done filmmaker, all butting heads, essentially. <laughs> so, yeah, they're the, that was the image. So it's based on the album, which is semi-autobiographical story of this guy's life. And interesting take is it came out of them touring. He was in Montreal and he just felt the wall, metaphorically, was him feeling so distanced from the people at these concerts. And it was quite weird him talking about that because he talks about being in these big stadiums. He didn't feel a connection with all these people. They were faceless. They were just so many you couldn't see them. And now you, you were talking about early Pink Floyd that you were listening to. I couldn't yeah. even imagine a small gig with Pink Floyd. It's just such a big sound. It needs to be on a big stage. I couldn't imagine what, doing a they, pub in front of 50 people. It's not that sort of music.
1: No, but they did kind of morph into that whole arena spectacular sort of thing. So they've always had these massive sets and you know flying pigs and weird shit and stuff, and they really are this sort of Get on stage, don't talk a lot, just play the music and let the visual show you what you need to know, sort of thing. Like I I unfortunately have never seen Pink Floyd live, but I know people that have seen them many times and they say that they will just get on stage, they'll just do their shit and they won't really interact with the audience all that much. And I guess there's a time and place for that sort of thing. But yeah, they very much are the the whole arena spectacular that oh, is it pink. It sounds Floyd. like they're one of the well, not if they were the first to
0: do it. But I know Bowie was doing that concept sort of album and concept tours as well, probably around a similar time. So I guess that was all happening. I guess the Who were as well. Hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. so there was a lot of it going on. Hmm. But getting back to the movie itself, so one thing we hadn't mentioned before is that the title character of Pink is actually played by Bob Geldof, the lead singer of the Boomtown Rats, who as far as I'm aware was not an actor. He was just someone that they picked for this movie. So I don't think he's acted in anything else other than this. So he is purely famous for being the Boomtown Rats and the man that created Live Aid. He hasn't hasn't appeared in Spice World yet,
0: so yeah, that's all.
1: (laughs) Was he in Spice World? Yeah, for one scene. Okay. So, yeah, so he's the title character, Pink. It sort of starts off in his head of him now and then it kind of goes back in time to the time of the war and his dad dying and then him living in the life of a child without a father sort of in that sort of probably the the 50s i'd say it's probably meant to be yeah and it's very reminiscent of a lot of that english films that you see about you know kids in the 50s they're all sort of that sort of snotty little kids that hang out on the railway tracks and he gets his dad's bullets and puts them under a train wheels and yeah. You know, It's similar to a lot of things you see from that time, but then as we said, Gerald Scarf's animations kind of come in and bring his thoughts to life as the animations sort of go. And it kind of flows really well with the idea of the songs as well. So obviously this is a musical movie, but it is, as I said, there's hardly any dialogue in the movie. It's purely just the songs and it—it's kind of like you know, twenty-four little video clips all strung together to make a movie.
0: Yeah, uh, it's definitely, um and that's something that Alan Parker said in the in the '99 doco was, you know, this was 1982, MTV hadn't started yet. This was pre-MTV. There was sixty hours of footage they cut together. There's two thousand cuts in the film. Like it's very—it's montage. In that way, there's a film chopping between the symbology, the symbiology, the animation kind of between, you know, it was adventurous, experimental in that way. Obviously, there was a concept. It's telling the story of a guy having a nervous breakdown or he's had a nervous breakdown and it's exploring memory is what's Hmm. happening. So as he's, you're seeing this character of Pink, he's having flashbacks to his past. He's having visions as well because he never would have met his dad. His dad died, you know, when he was very young in the war. yeah. So there are, there's imagery of the war and all this sort of stuff like this, you know, they've got footage of soldiers going and all these sort of things. He even goes back as a kid walking through the trenches, looking for his dad. There's a touching moment yep. actually when, he goes to a park, his mum's off shopping and he goes and plays in a park and there's a dad helping one of his kids on the titter-totter or one of the little bit of play equipment and he asks for help and the guy puts him on it and that sort of thing. And then the kid walks off and holds his dad's hand and he just walks up and grab, grabs his other hand. And it was just really yeah. weird. Like it was actually quite confronting. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah that would it be, is, isn't it? that's kind of hard. <laughs> he didn't have a dad and he, he wants one and that sort of thing. So you're just getting all these bits and pieces because there's no real long coherent scenes. In the movie, it's not like you're getting long, drawn-out pieces. It's literally smattings of memory. You sort of get that bit to establish that scene. Then there's a bit of school where his teacher's bullying him because he's, he wrote a poem in class and the teacher finds it. And we're talking that old-school British teacher where he's got the, what's the, is it the mortar, the hat? Mortarboard, yeah, mortarboard hat and the cloak and everything like that. So it's that traditional, you know, thing. And he's it embarrasses a kid. He reads it out and chastises him for it and all this sort of shit. So you're just getting all these moments of his past uh, bits and pieces mm. here.
1: And ironically, the the poem that he writes or the the poem that the teacher reads of his is the lyrics to Money.
0: Oh, is that what it is? I didn't see. I yeah, I, all that stuff. I missed all that.
1: <laughs> yeah, but no, it's the lyrics to the song Money that came out a few years before. But yeah, that. Probably the most well-known song of this movie is Another Brick in the Wall, which is broken up into three parts. But the one that most people would remember is Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, which I think is Pink Floyd's only number one uh, single of their whole career. So they're one-hit wonders, are they? Well, they're not really one-hit wonders, but they're more album people than single people. Okay. Yep. Like their albums have always done a lot better than, than singles because most of them were really long and didn't get much radio play. But, yeah, so it, we get that another brick in the wall with the whole, you know, hey, teachers, leave us kids alone sort of line. And as you said, it, it culminates in a scene of all these kids sort of marching down hallways with these weird masks on and eventually they fall into this giant meat grinder and get turned into sausages. And then you see the cartoon version of the puppet master teacher throwing these children into the meat grinder and turning them into mincemeat. And for for a person, like, I probably saw this in the late 80s. So I was probably in my teens when I first saw it. And even then it was still pretty confronting. So I can imagine if you saw this as a young person, it would stick with you for a long time. I I, I just saw
0: the film clip bit. So the animation of just the the teacher squishing the kids into the mixer, and I think it was intercut with the live action stuff too. But, yeah, it, it did stick with me and it did freak me out. I remember it freaking me out because conceptually it's just harsh it's like that's not cool yeah but i mean there's there's weirder sides with the plot too so you've got this bully of a teacher who's an absolute asshole and there's a bit in one of the montages there's a scene at him at home and he's eating dinner and he's being chastised by his wife so that's all you know where's that come from from him you know he's an asshole because he's being treated like that so he goes to school and does it and then later on when you got all the kids there he's the one chastising and in this like there's very that's very realistic looking like in that parts of the movie like when there's flashbacks him at the park and all that that's all very realistic. Then you've got the scenes, like you said, with all the kids walking along the conveyor belts. That's all very surreal. Like that imagery is not yeah. obviously real. There's there's mazes and lighting and everything makes it feel that little bit different. So you sort of get elements that are show what's real, what's not. So you've got this guy having these memories and then there's obviously hallucinations going on with yeah. what he's doing. And it's quite fascinating. So basically his his life story is told in the fact that he's, he's a kid, no parents, mother brought him up. He, he felt like an outsider pretty much from what you get because there's no dialogue set. So it's all the images you get of the, it's not a pleasant childhood. Like there's no fun no, memories. Not at all. You know, there's, you don't get, it's not like key moments and he's terro- it's terrible. You just don't, you don't see anything but just sort of Well, you kind
1: of, you kind of do get that sort of trauma because at one stage he's obviously looking for a pet and he finds a rat out in the field And then he brings the rat back home and his mum freaks out that he's brought this rat into the house. And then it kind of leads into the fact that he gets very sick when he was a child. And it's kind of insinuated that he's got sick because of the fact that he had this dying rat and he's caught something off the rat. Oh, that what that was about? I had no idea. Well, that kind of plays into the song Comfortably Numb, where as a child he's hallucinating because he's got this, this fever and hence the lyrics of the song. He's talking about how he has this fever. And the doctor comes in and gives him the drugs and he's he's like lying in bed with his fever. But then it cuts to when he's an adult and he's obviously medicating himself with the drugs and he's nodding off because he's on the drugs. And we kind of get that sort of full circle, sort of this is when I was a child and this is what happened. Now I'm an adult and I'm still comfortably numb in this sort of catatonic state. And at one stage you see, I think it may even be before that, but he's married and we see his marriage and he lives a pretty ordinary life until he becomes famous as his rock star. And there's one bit where he meets a groupie and the groupie goes back to his hotel room and then he just freaks out completely and the group is trying to impress him and he does, doesn't does care and he ends up just trashing his hotel room and that classic sort of rock star thing, throwing the TV out the window and all that sort of stuff. But then after that is where he totally goes off the rails and he gets a razor blade and he shaves like all the hair off his body, he shaves his eyebrows, he turns his all the broken bits and pieces in his room into this huge sort of diorama on the floor. And they must have like to actually film this scene, they would have had to have made that diorama on the floor and filmed around it. And it's it's pretty impressive when you think about it.
0: Well, that's set designers for you are pretty amazing people. Exactly. He actually cut himself in doing that scene. The blood was real because he accidentally cut himself in it and they kept going with it and used it later on. But
1: Yeah, so he he kind of from there turns into this psychopath sort of character and just the Nazi symbolism of it all. So he Shaves his eyebrows, he slicks his hair back, and he becomes this like leader of this group of people wearing these black uniforms with big shiny boots, and they have Nazi a symbol fashion, of two hammers, yes. and it were well, fascists exactly, but it is very much Nazi-ish. The fact that they're walking down the street with these big black banners with the the crossed hammers, and then we have that cartoon part of the hammers marching, which just again, it's iconic. Very. And it kind of goes from being that sort of mellow sort of songs before that, up until when they do Run Like Hell and a couple of those other songs, it becomes a real sort of yeah you know, driving drums, more heavy sort of sound of him metamorphosizing into this fascist character.
0: And again, I I mean, I think that's all part of the vision. That's not real, but it's, yep. it's him going into madness and... Where and why this is where people who understand things better than me. Like, this is what I don't get about concept albums. Like, we did Quadrophenia the other day, and we've done Tommy in the past. Now, I love that visual because the visual gives me something to to sort of attach onto because it's all an interpretation or whatever. But I, I, I know even classical music has, there is some of them, like the planets, there's Mars and all this, you know, they're meant to mean something. To me, it's just music. How is that?
1: Well, back in those sort of days, the symphonies were a story. I know, they're telling a, a story, were, but were I don't operas. know how,
0: how, how you interpret that. Like, if you tell me, yep. oh, Flight of the Bumblebee, it's about a bee flying, and you listen to the music going, oh, yeah, that's cool. But if you didn't tell me it was called Flight of the Bumblebee, I think it was a nice little bit of music. I wouldn't associate the bee with it, but that's me. Okay. I don't get it. So David Lynch is on something when he talks about my dog Toto. You pitched a little dog, didn't you? <laughs> That's because you brains. Burned... <laughs> yeah, anyway, sorry. So anyway, so, so for that, for, so when it comes to interpreting all this sort of stuff, it's just like quadruphenia, Like if I listen to that as an album, I don't know if it would tell me that same story. Like I just don't listen to lyrics or I don't hear lyrics as a problem. Hmm. So knowing what all this shit's about, I have no fucking idea. So I, if I listen to this album, I don't think I would have got any of this. So it's quite fascinating that there are, I mean, it's not probably, it's just, I'm not very smart, but when it comes to this sort of stuff, I just don't get it. So where the fascist thing is coming from, but yeah, like I was saying before, this idea all came from Roger Waters. He was touring. They were playing a concert at this big stadium in Montreal. And this dude was trying to get up on the stage and there was just, a, the crowd was just going crazy and doing all this sort of stuff. And he just hocked up with a and spat in his face. He just got so angry. And it's like, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> and it was all, yeah. and that's what the metaphor of this whole movie is. The wall. Is literally him putting up more and more bricks in his wall around himself, and that's that's yeah. what the movie is going on. So he's at this point where he is totally bricked himself in. That's the catatonic state that he's in. He's given up, or whatever you want to call it. Is is at a place where he's is done, you know? So and you're getting the flashbacks of memory of all the different bricks that he's put in place, essentially yeah. for this wall. And I don't know what the fascist thing is, but they sort of break it down and the encouragement, and that and it's sort of him breaking out. Like it's him yeah. No, and the wall does get broken at the end, but it's not like Tommy yeah, where he after runs the- off into the sunset, which I, I got Tommy. I, that made more sense to me, but that's Ken Russell, I think. So it's a bit yep. different.
1: After he does the whole fascist thing, we get probably the final sort of part of the movie and that's the trial, which is pretty much all animation. And it's kind of him got to the point where the wall is all around him and then he goes on trial about the wall. And the, the character of the judge is... What an ass. just a bizarre sort of drawing it's it's basically an asshole that talks and we get that whole sort of symbolism where you said it's very sexual because you get the flowers that kind of look like vaginas and you get that whole sort of you know pistol going into stamen or whichever way it is i'm not a botanist but it's it's very sexual in its imagery but then yeah we go on trial and we see that the judge tells him that he needs to be exposed before his peers and they they pretty much tear down the wall. And the movie kind of finishes on a scene where there's been a riot at the end of the concert with the fascists and there's people throwing Molotov cocktails at police vans and all that sort of stuff. And then it kind of phases into the aftermath of that. And it's just a bunch of little kids playing on the rubble on the street, picking up bricks that we're in the wall and picking up bottles of unburnt Molotov cocktails and pouring the petrol out. And it kind of has that sort of surreal ending to it. Well, the walls come down, everything should be okay now, but is it really? Yeah, I don't know. And there is probably so much more you could read into this movie that I myself haven't read into it. But yeah, it's it's one of those things. Like, as I said, I saw this probably late 80s. So it was probably around the same sort of time that I was starting to get into Pink Floyd as a concept that probably someone at school had the video and we are like, let's watch this movie. And since then, I've probably seen it 10 or 20 more times. So I have a tendency to try and watch this every couple of years. I was never lucky enough to see it on the big screen. I've only ever seen it at home on video. But it, it's... One of those things that has always stuck with me is one of my favourite musical concept movies. So, yeah, and it's something I really enjoy watching. So, as you said before, you haven't watched it probably as much as I have, but watching it again now, what was your reaction to it? I had no idea. Like, when I was talking
0: about my memories, obviously the scene of the, the Mincer, it was vivid, but in far as the memory go, I remember him shaving the eyebrows off, and that was freaking yeah. me out. And I think I'd seen that more recent than when I was a child. But so that's why I don't know if I've seen this yeah. film, forgotten it, or if I've seen that scene one day when I caught it flicking channels. I'm not sure. So, yeah. starting with that scene and seeing the rest of the movie, I wouldn't know what the fuck was going on. Still really didn't know what the fuck was going on, but but I enjoyed it for what it was. I really enjoyed it. Like I said, my take on Pink Floyd is the singles, the radio sh- song, um, yeah. and listening to the music in this is pretty amazing. So I, I get why people like Pink Floyd, like even not being stoned, but just to sit down, get the hi-fi out and you know, put on the album and just hear that music. It's got so many levels to it. I mean and they did reorchestrate the song, this album for the movie. So the movie has a lot more orchestration and and a lot more channels going on than than the album. But it's essentially the same. But yeah, just musically it's like it sounds like so much more. But when you realise it's really just a guitar there's not a lot. It's not Synthesizers or, or basic synthesizers, you know, it was pretty amazing stuff. So, going yeah. into it, watching it, I what I wished was I'd wish I'd seen it at the cinema. I really, yeah, me did. too. I um, just because the sound would be amazing and just to be totally encapsulated by the visuals, not being distracted by anything around you. So, I'm glad I've seen it. I really did enjoy it. Did I understand it? No, is it confronting? Yes, is it fun? Not really. And that's something that um, Roger Waters actually said at the doco at the end. You know, he's got misgivings about the film and everything. One of them is it's not very accurate. It's, he goes, there's no laughs in it. (laughs) No. Because it was meant to be autobiographical. And he said, you know, there was there were laughs, but it was such a dour. And he, his problem was it was a bit dour. And I guess that's what, I guess, Alan Parker took from it. And the whole school as a conveyor belt into a mincer. That's all Gerald Scarfe's imagery. That's straight out of that. That's not Roger Waters talking or describing. That was all from Scarfe. So they've all got their, obviously issues and they've all got their own depressions and things that they've bought to this project but no one bought the levity, that's for sure so it's it's not no. fun and that's and that's sort of, yeah, one of Roger's problems, you guys, there's no laughs and it's, a, you know, it's a long movie and there's no laughs, laughs. so it's pretty hard yeah. and I think critically it's sort of a bit in the middle, like Rotten Tomatoes it's around the 50% mark I think because if you're a fan, you're a fan, I get that but if you're yeah. not a fan, could be impenetrable if you're not up for it, I, I totally get that, but yeah, definitely if it was playing at the Aster, which I think it does get a regular turnout, sort of plays once a year maybe, I might have to keep my eye out for it because it's something I wouldn't
1: mind seeing in that. Because it was not made for television. Yeah, I think it would really have a different effect if you saw it on the big screen. See, I I'm a little bit tainted in the fact that I hadn't heard the album before I saw the movie. So now if I do listen to the album, I can just think of the imagery of the film along with the, the songs, which is more on me than it is on Pink Floyd. But yeah, musically it is an amazing piece of work. But even the cinematography and just the the ideas in some of the scenes like there's one scene where pink as an adult is drugged out sitting in front of the tv watching an old war movie about you know someone's dog dying in the war or something like that and it cuts to this sort of weird imagery of him sitting in the middle of a field i think it's probably meant to be on the front of the war between the trenches but he's just there on just this vast open space of him just sitting in a chair looking at the tv and then him as a child sort of comes in and stands the other side of the TV, and it's just an amazing image. Some war movie about some dog guy. <laughs> How dare you. All right, so you're gonna correct me now and
0: tell How me what war you. movie it is. It's the damn buses. And that dog is the poor dog that will never get re- that movie will never get remade because of that. Oh dog. yes, with the inappropriate name, yes. <laughs> Yes, and that's why that movie will never get made ever again Yeah, because he's pretty important to the story and no one will have the balls to make no. that movie. Nor should they because
1: it's not a good name. Okay. But yeah. but, yeah, it's like bits like that that stand out yeah, for you know. me in this movie because they're just really, really well filmed. So as a, a whole, as the fact that it is the movie of the, the sound, the songs, everything, I love it. As I said, I, I watch this every couple of years and it never gets old for me, so.
0: Well, I could see myself watching it again because I
1: watched it clean. I didn't want to read anything first
0: because I couldn't remember what I knew about it. So I just thought I'd go in cold and I watched it, was a bit confused. I watched a little bit on my phone, unfortunately, and then most of it on my iPad. So not the way I would prefer to have watched it. So yeah, I would love to see it again, but it won't be until I'm like, all right, let's do this properly. Get the best version I can, either if it's got to be a Blu-ray or you know, go to the cinema if I can. But I'm definitely intrigued to see it again. And that's why I'm tempted by the Blu-ray or DVD because there are commentaries. And I think Roger Waters did one. So it'll be interesting to hear their takes on it. So this is from around 99 as well. So it's a while ago when they did it. But So I'd be intrigued to hear a raw take on it, but with, with, you know, time passing between. They can look back and talk about it honestly. So that'll be interesting.
1: I do kind of lament the passing of the whole rock opera concept albums. It's not something you really get Anymore? I guess it's that whole sort of prog rock. Do really? Do you know? uh, Well I was about to say the only one I can think of recently, and that's not even that recent now, is my chemical romance, Welcome to the Black Parade or the whole Black Parade album. But I don't think people are really going out of their way to make Concept albums anymore, but I
0: think I mean the problem now with Spotify, like I mean I am I'm nearly fifty, and I'm when it comes to songs, unless it's a band I'm really into, like a Faith No More or Bloodhound Gang or something like that, I only know singles, I only know what's played on the radio, so I don't mm. know what's out there. And with Spotify now, you know they'll curate. Oh, you like Dua Lipa, Here's a bunch of things that sound like Dua Lipa or whatever. So if you went Pink Floyd on Spotify, maybe they'll throw something at you that you go, Oh, this is something here. There is a concept album out there, but it's just this. You sort of got to find it. Probably. So you've got to know where to look for it to find it. So there might be bands doing it, but for a very small audience that's niche. I don't know. Hmm. You're probably
1: right. It, it might be something I you know. need to look into a bit further. Yeah, there's no yeah. big bands doing it, yes. Well, Phantomus apparently right. did one back in 2005. I'm just looking at the wiki about uh, concept albums. So. Okay. Well,
0: I've got one of this. I've got one which is all movie themes, so it's not really. Well, actually,
1: on this list I'm looking at on Wikipedia, they're actually uh, saying the couple of Gorillaz albums are considered concept albums. Well,
0: they're telling a story. So technically it is because, I mean, especially with the I mean, the visuals and the, and the music videos that go with it, there's an ongoing narrative. Like there's characters you know noodles got replaced by a robot at one point and she was missing and then all this yeah so there is a an order in which to watch them so yeah they are but again smarter people than me can probably pick it up i just think they're cool songs all righty
1: okay well that's probably a nice place for us to wrap up our little talk about the wall so if you want to jump on our socials and tell us what your favorite concept album is or what you think of the wall or even if you think we're idiots for liking pink floyd so you can find us on facebook we are facebook.com slash the massive attack podcast we're on twitter as the ma podcast and you can find us on our website which is the com. and until next time we're actually going to go a little bit off topic next month because Christmas is coming and we like to do our 12 days of Christmas countdown. And we're going to tie that in with the letter X. And we're going to give you, instead of just giving you one X episode for our A to Z, we're going to give you 12. Our little Xmas minis are going to be our 12 episodes of X. So we've got a couple of ideas of what we're going to do for that. So stay tuned because starting from the 13th of December, we will be dropping our daily episodes for the 12 days of Christmas, which is always a fun time of year because we get to watch a lot of interesting Christmas tidbits. Yeah. And then after Christmas, we're probably going to cheat again and we're going to make our Y episode be our year in review episode. So... Not that we plan to have our A to Z end this way at the end of the year, but it's just the way it's worked out. So until we come back in mid-December, thank you very much, Mitch. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.